The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, take your Bibles and find your way to John chapter 13. John 13 will continue in our rich study of this, this marvelous section of Scripture that extends from John 13 through John 17, five chapters of the Apostle John's Gospel that really comprised one conversation. It was a conversation at the Last Supper, Jesus' last instruction to his men before he was going to the suffering, going to the cross the following morning. We've made our way all the way to verse 2. So follow along as I read verses 2 through 5. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God, and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. One of the saddest realities of any friendship, and certainly a sad reality in the history of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the reality of betrayal, the reality of a turncoat, the reality of someone who's false, someone who makes promises they don't fulfill, someone who ends up apostatizing from the faith, someone who says that they're your friend and they support the cause of Christ only to turn out to be a traitor. One of the most notorious examples of that was that of William Tyndale, a name that should be familiar to all of you. Tyndale was the translator of the first English Bible, and as strange as it sounds, he was England's most wanted man for that very crime, the crime of translating the Bible into the common man's language, translating the Bible so that normal people, regular people, anyone literate could actually read it. And for that, he was sentenced to death. It was a prize out for his head. He was underground doing his work of translation. According to John Fox, Henry Phillips, Henry Phillips, what a name, Henry Phillips pretended to be the friend and personal interest in Tyndale, developed an interest in his writings and persuaded the reformer that he was an honest man, handsomely learned, and very comfortable, said Fox. In the meantime, this man Phillips had altered his friendship with Tyndale into something entirely different with the English authorities. In fact, he alerted the imperial authorities in Brussels that he could deliver the notorious heretic, William Tyndale, with enough planning. Chose his moment, and then Phillips turned Tyndale in by luring him from an English house on the pretext of an invitation to dinner, having first borrowed from him the sum of 40 shillings, then waiting in the narrow alley right beside where he was supposed to meet for dinner were the imperial officers who, who, upon a signal from Phillips, not too much unlike Judas' kiss, they recognized Tyndale. He was arrested, removed to the castle, 
where 16 months later, he was strangled and then burned at the stake for the crime of translating the Hebrew and Greek Bible into English. Turned in by a supposed friend. When John Fox wrote about this betrayal, he said, nothing had happened so treacherous since Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. Just that name can send chills down your spine. He betrayed Jesus Christ and is universally agreed upon as the as the gold standard of treachery, the gold standard of infidelity, of disloyalty, and of treason. Well, this morning we're going to get a little glimpse into what was in the heart of Jesus, Judas, and in two weeks we're going to see more fully what he did to turn Jesus in and to rat him out. But we're introduced to Judas in this text, and we're introduced to him in a strange context, the context of very familiar scene that all of us know something about, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. Two weeks we'll see more deeply into this notorious traitor, but this morning we see him in context, in contrast, in comparison to Jesus. In looking at this study of the Apostle John's account of the events of this conversation and the events of that night at the Last Supper, we find a lot of things going on. It is going to get very interesting. Things happen. Things are said. Questions are asked. Questions are answered. Questions are asked and other answers are given. A little orientation. It's Thursday night of the Passion Week. It's the Feast of the Passover, which lasted for a whole week. In fact, Ezekiel 45.21 notes that the celebration of the Passover actually was seven days. A feast of seven days, he calls it, in Ezekiel 45.21. Jesus now comes to the night before his crucifixion, the night of his betrayal. He understands exactly what's happening. We went to great lengths last week to show that he knew the exact moment of the treachery that was going to take place. He knew what was going to happen on Thursday night. He knew what was going to happen with the chief priest. He knew what was going to happen at the first of the week when they welcomed him with open arms and palm leaves on the ground. This was deliberate. He knew exactly what was happening. And we meet again that little participle in this passage Jesus knowing. Jesus knowing. There were no surprises to our Lord this night. He wants to spend this evening with his men, giving them instruction and comfort before he is about to suffer. I don't think I'll ever get over that. Here's Jesus, a few hours from arrest, less than 24 hours from being crucified, and he wants to make sure they have instruction and his friends have comfort. How did they get there? Well, we noted last week that there was a, a, an interesting event, a, a series of events by which Jesus chose the upper room. And he chose the upper room with, uh, without everyone knowing. He sent some, some of his guys ahead, some of his men ahead, and said, you're going to meet a man carrying a, some water. He's going to take you to where uh, you're supposed to be. And, and the idea was that, that that upper room would be concealed from everyone's knowledge except when they got there. Why? Because then Judas couldn't turn them in too quickly. No doubt earlier in that week, over and over, Jesus had retired down through the Kidron Valley over into the uh, olive groves to pray in the Gethsemane area, but that's where he figured they would be later, and that's where he knew they would be when he leaves the supper, which we'll see in two weeks, turn Jesus in. So they find themselves up in the upper room, 
And they had come, there's some debate about this. They had either come from Bethany, which was a little over a mile, a mile and a half away, down the Kidron Valley, over the Mount of Olives, down into Bethany. They either come that, that mile and a half there, or they had come down from the, the Garden of Gethsemane. Either way, it's a pretty treacherous walk in sandals. I've been to Israel, and it is a tough place to walk in flip-flops, which was basically what these men had that were tied on. Their feet were unprotected only protected on the bottom by sandals. They would be dirty, even muddy. They would be filthy. Uh, and if it would be the equivalent of wearing flip-flops around in dirt and mud all day. Now, that sounds like a, an uncomfortable situation in and of itself. But it's multiplied when you're going to have dinner in the, in the situation and in the context that they were about to have dinner. This was not at a nice tall table with your feet neatly tucked under out of view of everyone. This was in a U-shaped table, probably about a foot off of the ground with pillows all around it. It was open at one side so that the food could be brought into the middle and and served around the U-shaped table. The disciples then would be leaning on these pillows with their feet either on their back, uh, to, to the back, away from the table, or as they would move around, because you all know what it's like to sit for a while with all of your weight on one of your elbows. Your hand goes to sleep pretty quickly, doesn't it? So you're moving around constantly. When you're moving around constantly, your feet keep bumping into each other, and you're eating. Not a very sanitary situation. So it's very customary to do what? Wash your feet. The discomfort of having filthy feet was not uncommon. In fact, it happened every day. So foot washing was was an action of custom, of comfort, of hygiene, of hospitality on the part of a host. It was the host who was responsible for making sure there was a slave, never the host, a slave to wash the feet of those who had come to dinner. Washing feet was a, was a menial task. It was, a, it was the work of a slave. It was only the work, sorry, of a lower class woman that would do this in this culture. It was a society that was not so primitive, though, There was an elaborate social structure with very specified etiquette norms. Shame and honor were very important. We see the disciples incessantly jockeying for position and status. They wanted to be in the most important place. And no doubt when they came in to dinner that night, the first thing they did was argue about who was going to sit at the head of the table. Touching and especially washing a person's foot was to assume a very, very low social status. We get a glimpse of that, by the way, and, and what it meant to wash someone's feet. I don't know if you've ever connected this before, but in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to be baptized. And he talks about his worth and the, the, the infinite inferiority he felt before his Lord. And he says this, As for me, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And listen, I am not fit to remove his sandals. Why? To wash his feet. He said, that's the lowest thing I can picture. I'm not even even worthy for that. But it shows you what it meant to wash someone's feet. It was a very slave-oriented, menial task. So as they sit down in this U-shaped table, no one is there to wash the feet. There is no host. There is no slave. This is a borrowed room More importantly, not one of the disciples seems ready and willing to remedy the problem. 
They've shown up. And instead of figuring out who's going to make the dinner appropriate, who's going to wash feet, we'll find out in a minute. They're arguing about who's going to sit where. And in light of the problem of dirty feet, we see the most amazing contrast between Jesus the Savior and Judas the betrayer. If you want an outline this morning, we're going to look at two contrasting dispositions in the shadow of eternity. Two contrasting dispositions in the shadow of eternity. Jesus in the shadow of the cross, Judas in the shadow of his own suicide. The first person we meet in this this, uh, contrast is Judas. Number one, the selfish treachery of the betrayer. This is the first disposition, the selfish treachery of the betrayer. Verse two, during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Stop right there. Now, the first thing that stands out about this verse is the designation of Judas, how John identifies him. He could have just said Judas. He could have just said Judas Iscariot. He said Judas Iscariot, the son of a man named Simon. He uses three markers to make sure we know exactly who he's talking about. Now, this is a twofold reason. First of all, to highlight the identity of the betrayer and also to distinguish him from another disciple who's also named Judas. That was the son of James. There were two Judases. If you read the lists of the disciples, two men named Judas. Judas, the son of Simon the Iscariot, and Judas, the son of James. Luke also makes sure that we know the difference when he talks about the choosing of the 12. In Luke 6, 16, he says, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Judas Iscariot's name became associated with this treacherous, awful, disloyal act. I mean, the name Judas is one of the most notorious names in history. We all know the treachery of men like Benedict Arnold, right? Or, or, or Brutus, et tu brute. But no name in history brings the personification of betrayal like, like Judas. I've never met a, a guy named Judas. People don't even name their dogs Judas. His name is almost universally known and universally disdained. Now look at this. Judas was the son of a man named Simon Iscariot. The term Iscariot refers to his hometown of Kiriath in southern Judah. Uh, Thus Judas was not a Judean, by the way. He was the only one of the 12 who was not from Galilee. He was the only non-Galilean disciple. We have almost no details of Judas' life, but the fact that we know his family name reminds us of a few things. He was a man, a real man. He was a man who grew up in a real village, a man who had friends and family, and a man who had a father named Simon. It personifies him. This was not just some mythical, legendary serpent. This was a real man. He called a man named Simon his dad. Judas' name appears in all three lists of the disciples, Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, although it always in every list appears, guess which position? Last. His name is missing in the list of the disciples in Acts 1.13. There's only 11 mentioned because by that time, as we learn in the book of Acts, he had already committed suicide out of grief for what he's going to do to Jesus. 
We do know this, though. Judas must have been important, and he must have been a trusted disciple because he served as their treasurer. This is remarkable. He was the treasurer. They gave him the money. He was the one who was organizing all of the trips and all of the meals for the disciples. John 12, 6 and John 13, 29 tell us that he was the treasurer. Now, as the Lord and the disciples come into Bethany a week earlier, a scene plays out that revealed the heart of Judas and solicited a very interesting comment from John. I mean, remember when you're reading, um, when you're reading the Gospels especially, pay extra special attention to what the narrator tells you. The narrator has that divine omniscience that God gives through inspiration to know and see and assess things like no one else. Turn back over to one chapter, chapter 12. Remember, it's one week earlier. They come in the week of the Passover. They're staying in Bethany. Who lives in Bethany? Mary and Martha. That's where Lazarus lives. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Verse 1, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there. Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Just a little fun footnote. Can you imagine the popularity of Lazarus? Can you imagine the interview schedule he must have kept? He dies, he's buried, he's awake again, and he's reclining at the table, and you can hear people going, Lazarus, dude, what was it like? Did you see a light? Did you see God? Were you what was it like? You died, you came back from the dead. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That was, that was perfume that was used for a burial. Verse four, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, see how John gives these little digs and insights? Said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Verse 6. Don't miss verse 6. Now he said this, Judas said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. Now we find out something about Judas. And he, as he had the money box, remember he was the treasurer, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. That's just profound. Judas is planning on turning in Jesus. He knows Jesus will be killed. Judas is involved with saying, don't anoint him. This is, this is too expensive. Jesus answers, not in general, he's answering specifically to Judas. Judas. And says, Judas, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you, have all, you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Notice who he's talking to. Specifically, eye contact, face to face with Judas. Judas was a liar, a thief, and a betrayer. But he had a helper in his treasury. And we find this back in verse 2 of chapter 13. The devil, having put into the heart of Judas to betray him, the devil. Now we come to the dark side of the story with the mention of the devil. 
I don't want to ask you to raise your hands, but I want to ask you, do you believe in the devil? Because Jesus did, and the Bible does, and certainly, 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 Judas has an acquaintance with him. This brings up an interesting theological issue. You have to ask this. It's very clear, the text is, in John 13, 2, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Who is then responsible for this betrayal? Is it Judas or is it the devil? Is it Satan? There's a, there's a line of, um, of thinking. It's a remarkable line of thinking. It comes out of liberal scholarship from the late 1800s out of Germany that said Judas wasn't really a bad guy. What Judas was doing was he knew the power of Jesus, and he knew how, how incredibly uh, um, uh, gracious and kind Jesus was. And he thought, I'm going to turn Jesus over, and he'll either win them over or he's going to be powerful, and that will force him to set up the kingdom. He's going to overrun the government, overrun the Romans, overrun the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, and then we'll have it in. See, Judas was actually on Jesus' side. He was trying to help him out. There's a problem with that. Judas is called, as we'll see in two weeks, the son of damnation, the son of perdition. And it's said here to be in conspiracy with, with the devil. Judas wasn't trying to hasten the kingdom. Judas was trying. Judas was trying to look out for Judas. This was about money. John already told us that he was all about money, all about being involved in Christian things for his own self-profit and gain. So who's responsible, though? The devil's involved in his heart. We would discover that the devil wanted Judas to betray Jesus, and this betrayal would lead Jesus to the cross, and the cross would be the atoning sacrifice for sinners who believe. I mean, what is the devil thinking? I mean, if, if Jesus saves by his death, why does, why does the devil want him dead? Wouldn't you think that the devil would want to do everything he could to keep Jesus from the cross? Judas was in it for himself. Satan was in it for himself as well. How do we figure that out? What, what is the devil involved with here? I mean, what is Judas trying to do here? Well, I think the answer lies in a critical miscalculation in Satan's thinking. Now, a careful scan of the New Testament reveals that Satan has a power well, he's got a lot of powers. Frankly, he's got a lot of different powers. He's the prince of the power of the air. He, he's actually running the systems and the governments of this world right now, according to Ephesians chapter 2. He has a lot of power, but he has one nuclear weapon in his arsenal, one main, super, massive, epic, impactful power that's higher and more powerful than everything else he does. You say, what power is that? In order to understand this, you have to, you have to listen to the writer of Hebrews. You can turn there if you want. Hebrews chapter 2, very, very important territory in understanding the nature of the atonement and in understanding the nature of the devil. We find out something about the devil here and his power. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same. So Jesus becomes a man. He has flesh and blood. What is the, com the most common attribute of flesh and blood? Everyone dies. That's the issue. Why did he become flesh and blood? It tells us next phrase. That through death. Here it is. Jesus became a man so he could die. 
He had a heartbeat so it could stop. He drew breath so he could stop breathing. He became a man so he could die like us. Why? That through death he might render powerless him who had, here's his power, the power of what? Of death. Who is that? Namely, the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. <laughs> Look, Satan thought, if I kill Jesus, that'll be the end. It's interesting how God's timing works in our scripture reading this morning in Acts 2. Because the answer to that is in Acts 2 in the very first Christian sermon ever preached by Peter. In Acts 2, 24, but God raised him up again. Listen, putting an end to the agony of death. Who owns the agony of death? Who has the power of death? The devil does. How in the world did Jesus defeat the power of death? He did it in the resurrection. That's why 1 Corinthians says two different times, if we don't believe in the resurrection, we should be pitied. We don't have a salvation at all. He defeated the power of Satan and death in the resurrection. I don't think Jesus, I don't think Satan rather, had the resurrection on his radar. He just wanted Jesus done. Satan used his nuclear weapon, death, with the Son of God, but he didn't calculate Jesus' power over that death and likely believed the cross would be the end. He didn't anticipate that Jesus would rise from the dead on the third day, 1 Corinthians 15, 54, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, this mortal will put on immortality, then will come the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What victory is that? It's resurrection. We can share in the hope of resurrection because we know one who rose from the dead. 2 Timothy 1.10 but now uh, he's been received, uh, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. Here it is, who abolished death and brought to life, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Yes, Judas and Satan were in cahoots with each other. Now, a heart that is under satanic manipulation wills exactly what the devil wills. Judas was fully responsible, and Satan was totally involved. So who was responsible for the betrayal, Satan or Judas? The bottom line is they both were in a conspiracy with each other, involved to kill Jesus. Judas was under Satan's influence, and at the same time, totally responsible for his actions. Back in John chapter 6, verse 70, by the way, Jesus actually said that Judas was himself a devil. Now, this reference is, is a clear marker that, yes, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus washed Judas' feet. I mean, look for a second back in chapter 13. You have this uh, mention of Judas in verse 2. But really, the, the full understanding of the betrayal doesn't happen down until down in verse 21 and following. 
Why did he just save all of this, John save all of this discussion about Judas till then? Because he's very clear, Judas was there, Judas was intending to betray him, and then it says, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, no footnote, where it says, except Judas. Can you imagine the eye contact that Judas and Jesus had? I tried to imagine that this week as I was thinking through this passage, and my suspicion is there probably was very little eye contact. I think Jesus would have looked at Judas. I don't think Judas could have looked at Jesus. Knowing what he's about to do and watching the Lord, think of all Judas had seen, miracle after miracle, all the words he'd heard taught time after time, and he's washing his feet. John makes sure that we know that Jesus washed the feet of Judas with full awareness of the scheme, which leads us to consider the antithesis of Judas and his co-conspirator of the devil. Now let's look at the contrast at Jesus. This moves really, really fast. Number two, the loving loyalty of the Savior. The loving loyalty of the Savior. Jesus, knowing that the Father, verse 3, had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, girded himself. Pours water into a basin, begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. Remember, the discussion between the disciples in the previous days has been this. Who would have the greatest position in the kingdom, right? They've even provoked Jesus to get an idea of, of how they would line up in his thinking. Who would sit where? That concern didn't diminish during the supper. Luke informs us of a conversation that happened at the Last Supper during this thing happening, during Jesus washing of their feet. This this, this happens. Uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 24. And there arose a dispute at the supper as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. (laughs) Jesus is washing their feet and they're arguing over who's going to sit in the best place. This discussion likely took place as they decided who was going to sit where at the table. I like what William Hendrickson says. He says, The fact that greatness is measured with a yardstick of service had not registered with them yet. They were still thinking greatness was different than Jesus had defined it over and over and over. Those who are the greatest are your servants, your slaves. Back to verse 3. Here we find it again. We saw it in verse 1. Jesus knowing. Here again we meet the omniscience of the Lord, his awareness of what's coming. What did he know? What did he really know? Well, he knew he was, uh, he was, he was God. He knew he was God, as we'll find out over and over throughout this passage, because he knew he was once with God, had come to the earth and was going back to God. He had full awareness of his deity. He didn't just wake up one day, as the German scholars would say, and say, oh, I think I'm divine. No, he knew, Jesus knowing. He was the only true God, has the right to all things in his hands, this text tells us. Uh, he knew where he where had come from, God in heaven. He knew where he was going back to God, the Father in heaven. He also knew that the Father had, I love this, given all things into his hands. What does that mean? We find out in the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me. That he's God. He owns everything. 
He's not a God. He is the God, the creator God, the triune God. John 3.35, he actually said, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. This was nothing new. Jesus also knew that he was inside 24 hours of being with the Father, being with God. Note, I love this. Notice uh, uh, the interchange here. In verse 3, he talks about coming forth from God, going back to God. And in the very first, he says, knowing that the Father had given. See the, the Father and God interplay there? Synonyms. One ancient commentary, Bernard remarks, gee, I love this. Jesus came from God, not leaving him, and went to God, not leaving us. This is going to be a theme in the coming chapters. Now, here's what's remarkable to me. Here's the contrast. With such knowledge of his own divinity and deity, with such power being God, very God, it's hard to imagine that Jesus wouldn't have stopped Judas leaving the room, disciplined Judas, rebuked Judas. He could have stopped the whole scheme. No one knew where they were. They could have slipped out of Jerusalem that night and no one would have ever found them. Instead, he washes feet. Verse 4 is um verse 4 is biblical slow motion because it could have just said John could have said well he he began to wash the feet w- listen to how deliberate he is in this description he got up from the table from supper he laid aside his garments plural it was in the spring he probably had uh, uh, three layers of clothes on his undergarment his normal garment, and a cloak, which would keep you warm. So those outer two layers, he removes them, and taking a towel, he girded himself. This was not any ordinary towel. This was a very long towel. Some people uh, estimate that this, this, this towel could have been up to like 10 yards long. And what it was was a towel, you would, a slave would wrap themselves around and around and around, and then the, the part of the, of the towel would, would, be, would be left in the hand, and after you, after you wash the feet, you would wash and rinse and cleanse finally with that towel. And when that part was dirty, you'd pull some more off and wipe the rest of the feet. It's a very long towel. It's almost as if John sees everything. Do, it's as if everyone's sitting there. wasn't as if everyone's sitting there with dirty feet about to have dinner. Arguing, arguing about who's sitting where. And Jesus stands up. And you can see in the midst of the conversation and in the midst of the discussion, they kind of look over. They're kind of arguing. They probably look over, and Jesus gets up, and he just walks over to the basin. Takes his outer garments off, wraps himself in the towel, and without a word, goes over and begins washing their feet. It's amazing how many details John provides for us here. It's as if he wants us to see and feel in slow motion the wonderful condescension of God acting like a slave. Peers didn't wash each other's feet. 
This was for slaves and servants. Luke provides something Jesus said during this supper that John omits, by the way. He said in Luke 22, 7, 22, 27, For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am you, I am among you as one who serves. Then he goes on to talk about leadership in the kingdom is not like Gentile leadership. Where you lord it over, it's where you serve. You say, well, I'm more interested in this foot washing. Well, next week we're going to see a lot more of that because Jesus gets to Peter. And the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth does it again. But in order to fully understand this, I want to show you one very associated passage in Philippians. I think this is exactly what Paul was thinking about, looking at the Lord. He says, do nothing, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfishness, that's Judas, or empty conceit, that's the devil, but with humility of mind, regard one another as, as more important than you, more important than yourself. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Why? Have this attitude, this attitude of humility in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. This is so critical. Taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Nowhere was Jesus taking on the exact example of a slave more prominent than when he washed the feet of the disciples. He humbled himself, and that humility extended into the next day, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And God highly exalted him and gave him the name Lord. Jesus himself interprets and applies what this foot washing and the servitude means. And it has everything to do with clean feet and a clean soul in receiving the gospel. Understanding who Jesus is. Understanding his death for sin. Receiving him as Lord and Savior and believing that his atoning substitutionary sacrifice applies because he proved it by the resurrection. If you know Christ, there's so many reasons to worship looking at him in this, in this passage. And if you don't, there are so many reasons to worship by seeing the Lord Jesus in this passage. We'd love to talk to you about that. Our elders will be around. You can talk to some of the folks around you. I'll be in the back if you want to talk about your soul. We'd love to tell you what it means to know Christ and not to be on the side of the betrayer, but to be on the side of the Savior. Father, I, uh, I want so badly to keep going and look at what Jesus does when he washes Peter's feet and how he interprets this cleansing of the feet as an illustration and analogy of the cleansing of the soul and of salvation. Give us refreshing thoughts to, to worship you because we've seen your glory in servitude We've had just a small glimpse of Judas this morning, and in a few verses we'll see him in full, the full fury of his betrayal. Oh, Father, make, their, make your grace so evident in our congregation that there are no apostates. 
no Judases, no Demas, no one who would rise up, no Diotrephes. Thank you for the picture you give us of servitude. God washed feet. Let that picture drive how we serve one another even this week. In Jesus' name, amen.